I finished studying yesterday afternoon. I was asked by one of our senior saints whether I was going to keep him awake um, this morning. And I didn't have a real quick response, but a couple hours later it came to me and uh, because I was just kind of going back through the chapters that you've been reading. And, uh, and I was thinking to myself that, well, he must have fallen asleep last week because um, Jesus does not have fond things in Mark 14 to say about those who fall asleep at the wheel. Um, <laughs> but his disciples in Gethsemane and, you know, this is just a part of the Gospels where we are in where uh, Jesus's disciples are undergoing fierce trial as they realize that their leader is going to be executed and he is on the way to death. And uh, today we are talking about Jesus condemned and denied, where Jesus is taken to trial and then he's denied even by his one of his most faithful and loyal disciples. And so if you would, would you read with me? We're going to begin Mark 14, verse 53 through 72. This is God's word. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests. Elders and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We have heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? I am, Jesus said, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. What do we need? Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fist and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Why did Jesus die? On the surface, it seems to be a fairly simple question. But as we get into the larger issues, it becomes far more complex. After all, Jesus was a Galilean peasant. He was one who was uh, not notorious. He was not famous in any way. He was a religious reformer who was noted to be a prophet. But in Jerusalem, he was still very much unknown. He was known to be a healer. Some had seen him work miracles. Some had not in Jerusalem. And he had the brand of being some form of revolutionary. But friends, I would just remind you that there were many revolutionaries in the first century. There were messiahs appearing in Jerusalem um, at least every year who would claimed that they were going to be the Messiah, and that did not mean second person of the Trinity. It just meant the anointed of God to deliver his people from Roman oppression. And so Jesus was a revolutionary, not like these others, but this was his identity, a reformer, a healer, and some form of revolutionary. And yet he is killed by the most powerful people in the region. And so why did he become so noticeable to them? Why did Jesus go to his death? We are familiar with the phrase that Jesus died for our sins. And when we say that, we we typically have a theological understanding of that phrase, that Jesus died in the place of our sins, Okay, that he took our death that we rightly deserve. And that's very proper. And that's the normal answer to the question, why did Jesus die? It's true. He died in place of our sins. And today we're going to focus on a bit of a different nuance because you can also say this phrase in a different way. If you've ever traveled to the Dakotas, you might have had occasion to think about this. If you've been around some of the Indian reservations there, uh, you'll find a bumper sticker. And it says this. It says, Custard died 
for your sins. <laughs> Point being that good mustard and his entire uh, army was slaughtered because of what was being done to the Indian peoples as they were being systematically removed from their uh, from their lands. But it's important for us to think about that Jesus died because of human iniquity. And in Acts chapter two, uh, we find the apostle Peter, who's a very significant player in this in this narrative, affirming both of these. He says that Jesus died according to first the set purpose of God. That's the theological meaning. But then that he also died at the hands of wicked men. He died because of the evil of human of, of human beings. And that's where we're going to focus today. You know, what exactly brought about Jesus's death? And the first thing that we're going to see in verses 53 through 65 is that our judgments about Jesus reflect our cultural ambitions and dreams. And that the judgment that was passed on Jesus in this trial and the judgments that we would even pass today, they ultimately reflect something about our heart and what we truly value. And you've seen in the passage that this was a bit of a kangaroo court, the the verdict had already been passed down upon Jesus. And it was an unusual trial. Uh, it was more of a fact-finding mission. It would be something like a grand jury more than a trial. But it was unusual in the sense that capital trials did not happen at night and capital trials did not happen on major feast days. And this was, of course, the Jewish Passover. So what exactly is happening? Well, there were exceptions in the Mosaic Law for capital trials that were of uttermost significance. And if the if it was necessary for the religious authorities to make a point and to make an example of someone, then they were allowed to have special trials uh, for these serious offenses. But one thing that had happened during Roman occupation is that the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body of the Jewish people, they were allowed to meet and convene, but they could not enforce their own laws. The power of the sword had been taken away from them. And this was one thing that the Roman governor guarded jealously. So Rome kept the power of execution. So what the Sanhedrin, who wanted to put Jesus to death, what they had to do was trump up a political charge that would somehow threaten Rome. Okay, and that's what we find here is they are attempting to trump up a political charge out of some uh, out of also condemning Jesus by their own law. And so why was Jesus exactly handed over to the Romans? What was going on? The main thing that goes on in our passage is Jesus's bleeding together of two themes that the Jewish mind could not reconcile. The themes of exaltation and humiliation. Uh, as many of you know, I grew up in eastern North Carolina where the, uh, the major idol that's worshipped is baseball. <laughs> we, um, we grew up playing baseball. You started when you were four years old, and um, I still have pictures of my hot dog city uniform and how important I thought I was in that uniform. Um, and, uh, you know, we regularly sent teams to the Little League World Series, and, and baseball was king. And I remember by the time I'd reached, uh, when I was 10 years old, you always had two all-star teams. You had the 9- and 10-year-olds and the 11- and 12-year-olds. And I was to learn something about these bleeding together of two themes of exaltation and humiliation. It was, <laughs> it was the end of the season, the regular season, and uh, I played for uh, the A.L. Williams Termites. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we had those, it was the polyester uniform days and the stirrups, so they were awesome. And they were so, the uniforms were so hot. You didn't know why anyone ever picked those for 90 degree weather. But the end of the regular season, we were playing, um, uh, the team that we were tied uh, for with for the uh, for the league championship. And uh, and it was the bottom of the sixth inning, which was the bottom of the ninth. And uh, the bases were loaded and the best pitcher in the league was on the mound. And uh, you can imagine whose turn at bat it was. I was I was hoping the guy in front of me would strike out. <laughs> you know, it was, Can he please <laughs> get out? You know, it's too, I don't want to be up in this much pressure. And uh, so I stepped to the plate. And I, and I really, I still remember the fear just kind of pulsating through. And uh, so the first pitch uh, starts my way, and I absolutely just unloaded on it. <laughs> it was unbelievable. You know, I mean, the thing just <laughs> sailed out in the left center. I felt like the natural, you know. Here it is. Just can the music start. And, uh, you know, so 
we were down by a run, two runs scored. We went. You know, I mean, and there's this moment of jubilee on the field. I couldn't believe it. My parents were running on the field. Everybody was. I felt like a hero. You know, this was uh, this was the denouement of my existence at this point. And here I am just celebrating it. And right after the game, though, they were announcing the all-star teams. And uh, and for a 10 year old, I had had a really good season. And then I just had this crowning moment where, you know, my hit won the regular season championship. And so I'm waiting in the dugout, eagerly expecting the announcement of the 9- and 10-year-old All-Star team. And uh, my team was one of the first to be announced uh, because our, our team name started with an A. And so they named uh, two players off of our team. And uh, I was still sitting in the dugout as everybody else trotted across the field. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, they must have made a mistake. And, uh, <laughs> so they kept naming down the teams. I said, well, they'll circle back around, you know. <laughs> And, uh, and it became quite painful and obvious that my name was not going to be mentioned when the coach's son, um, David Doherty, I still remember it, uh, <laughs> as he trotted out across the field. And I realized I'm not going to be named to the all-star team. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but there was this moment of it was absolutely devastating for me. And I could not hold it together. I didn't even make it out of the dugout that night without just boo-hooing and sobbing. Because I was stretched to the extent of my emotional capacity. You know, I had just gone from this moment of exaltation, I mean, just pure glory, <laughs> to, I mean, no, ten minutes later, <laughs> I'm at the bottom of the pit, you know. And, and I could not hold it together. My parents had to carry me off, you know. <laughs> and I had this wonderful, I still remember my, my mother's counseling me that night. But, but these themes of exaltation and humiliation, we struggled to hold together. And that was what was happening for these Jewish leaders. They were trying to, to understand what Jesus was saying. And they began to see that he did conceive of himself as a Messiah, some figure who was exalted. But then they had him under arrest. And he also talked about himself suffering. And so he talked about humiliation. And for these Jewish leaders, this was an embarrassment. Okay, this was a complete embarrassment. And so your point here is that he was an embarrassment in point A. He was an embarrassment who threatened their power, prestige and possessions. An embarrassment who threatened their power, prestige and possessions. The Sanhedrin was composed mostly of Sadducees and some Pharisees would have been there amongst the, um, the elders. But these were very powerful men. They were the religious elite. And by compromising and making political alliances with the Romans, they kept themselves in power. And so when a Messiah came proclaiming himself to be the leader of the Jewish people, who had the most to lose in Israel? The Sanhedrin. Because if this was not a really viable Messiah who could lead them in a revolt against Rome, who was going to lose position and power? The Sanhedrin. And so Jesus, as they began evaluating his teachings and his teachings of that he was going to be exalted and yet he was going to be humiliated. And here he was, had this little ragtag group of Galileans. Um, this was not a notable bunch, guys. Uh, the Galileans were kind of the laughing stock of Israel. They were the country bumpkins. OK, they had a particular accent and they were they were made fun of. And so this was not a notable group. Jesus was the leader of a small band, and he was proclaiming himself Messiah. And remember that during the Passover, there were some one million Jewish people descended upon the city. And they were, um, it was kind of a hotbed for political activity. And here Jesus was doing things in the temple that looked like he was proclaiming himself Messiah. And if things got a little too raucous, what was Rome going to do? Just outside the city, Rome kept a fairly large regiment of soldiers who were ever ready to come and to sack the city. Okay, so the Sadducees, what they needed to do was to quell any rebellion that they did not think was going to be successful. So that is one of the major motivations that goes into crushing Jesus and why they needed to put down this, this teacher, this first century reformer. So they were embarrassed by him. Now, secondly, here that his blasphemy, as we read about in verse 64, was his failure to fit into their cultural paradigm. 
that he did not fit into their cultural world as to what they thought a Messiah was to be. Now, if you look down in verse 64, you see the priests say this. Um, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? But what blasphemy did Jesus utter? As we said just a moment ago, Jesus refers to the fact that he was the Messiah. Now, when, as they were proceeding with the trial, at first they could not get a consistent witness against Jesus. The Jewish law was very clear that you had to have two witnesses that were basically unanimous in their opinion. And they could not get consistent testimony. And so the, the, the chief priest gets very frustrated. And they made this accusation about the temple, but they could not get a consistent story. And, uh, but in the Jewish world, when you talked about the temple, hand in hand with a renewed temple went the theme of a Messiah. And so the chief priest just comes out with the question, are you the Messiah? And for the very first time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus answers the question. Very simply, I am. Now, to proclaim to be the Messiah in the first century was not a claim to be the second person of the Trinity. Though Jesus is definitely the second person of the Trinity, he was just then an anointed one. He was maybe the one who was going to deliver them from Rome. That is what these, uh, this high priest was thinking. But how could he possibly deliver from Rome? And listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. How could this man, deserted by his followers, standing powerless before them, possibly be the glorious Messiah? The idea was, to the chief, to the high priest anyway, blasphemous. How could this man be God's anointed one who was to lead God's people into a new glory when he had no power and no authority? And here he was judging the Sanhedrin who was to be the body who recognized the glorious Messiah. This was blasphemy. This man was ridiculous. His claim was ludicrous. And so they needed to do away with him because he was a mockery to the Jewish people and he was a threat. And the question is that we have to ask ourselves in point two is, would Jesus be any more acceptable to us today? Does he fit the mold for how we define greatness? Because obviously he did not fit into the cultural world of what greatness was in the first century. They wanted a powerful leader who was going to lead them in exaltation and take the Jewish nation from its slums and lead it back into exaltation, what she had once been under King David. That's what they were longing for. That was the cultural ambition and dream. And Jesus didn't fit into that. And we have to ask our own selves the question, what do we define as greatness today? Luke Timothy Johnson, who's a New Testament scholar, talks about this issue in his commentary on James and he defines a few maybe key points of how we define greatness today. And you find them here on your page. We speak of power, we speak of prestige, and we speak of productivity. And so let's just think about each of these for just a moment, about how we think of greatness and how that compares to who Jesus was. But in terms of power, Jesus had very revolutionary and radical teachings. He taught that the last would be first and the first would be last. His war horse was a donkey, not a stallion. And his weapon of warfare was a towel, not a sword. And when his disciples took up the means, as we saw last week, when they took up the means of the world and took up a sword to defend the kingdom, he rebuked them for it. And so his conceptions of power, of hierarchy and control are absolutely different. And friends, sometimes we look at the first century and say, how could they have judged Jesus why did they find him so ludicrous? When really we have to ask ourselves the same thing. For someone who so radically, under, who understands power so radically different, would we have any different judgment? Prestige. Typically when we think of greatness, we think of someone who has a name. Jesus didn't think much for a name for himself. In fact, he keeps, he keeps his identity under wraps until the 14th chapter. It's at the very end of his life where he finally confesses that he's the Christ in a public place. He wasn't concerned with promoting his own fame. He didn't have his name on the side of a building or on a sign. And um, as my friend Tim Russell likes to say, Jesus knew something very special, that good meat makes its own gravy. <laughs> and uh, I'd never heard that one. And... <laughs> You know, that Jesus just didn't do the self-promotion thing, and he wasn't concerned with his own prestige. 
But that's often how we, uh, how we value greatness in our own world. So, again, would we really be any more uh, acceptable? To, to, would Jesus be any more acceptable to us today? And the final thing that we often think about in terms of greatness is productivity. That if someone is truly great, that they will have a stupendous following and, and, and they will be extremely effective at what they do. They'll be a good manager and, and have all kinds of power and control. But when you evaluate Jesus's life at the end of it, it was largely a failure. Only one disciple followed him to his trial. The other 11 had already deserted. One had betrayed him. He had a few women who were loyal to him. But that wasn't much to speak of. Jesus had been ministering for three years, kind of on the outskirts, but had never gone to the center of Jerusalem and really done much till till what it seems to be maybe the end of his life. But he was largely a failure. And productivity-wise, we would not be extremely impressed with him. His strategic plans were not in order. And so when when we look at that first century condemnation of Jesus and we wonder about it, what we really need to be wondering about is ourselves. Would our judgment be any different? Because the bottom line is he was condemned by a first century court. But friends, the kingdom of God that Jesus preaches is alien to us as well. And it can be easy for me to look upon those first century, that first century Jewish court and to condemn them. What were they doing killing Jesus? He was such a cool guy. When I would have been right along with them saying away with this man for his blasphemy. Because his kingdom and its just alien nature of turning the other cheek, of loving your neighbor, of walking the extra mile, the last being first, the first being last, you know, all of this, all these paradoxical statements that's equally as foreign to us. And so what do we do, though, when we find ourselves condemned, you know, by the trial of Jesus, that we would equally put him on trial as well? What do we do? Well, there's an interesting passage in here when Jesus is asked whether he is the blessed one. He says, I am. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand, of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a combination of two quotations from the Old Testament, from Psalm 110 and from Daniel 7:13. And Daniel 7 in particular talks about the coming of the mighty one on the clouds of heaven. What is he talking about here? Well, from Daniel 7, it's a is a theme of judgment, okay? where the one who was vindicated by God, who was exalted as his servant, was going to come in judgment upon the world. And do you see what radical thing Jesus has just said? This was preposterous. As he sat in front of the most powerful men in Jerusalem, and he's being judged by them. Do you catch what Jesus says back? That no, I'm coming in judgment upon you. That I'm coming in judgment upon you. That I'm the one who ultimately stands in judgment here. Even though you judge and condemn me. But friends, when we find ourselves in that place of putting Jesus under our own judgment, this also becomes the best news. Because the righteous judge of all the world is judged on our behalf. And he willingly takes that judgment. He willingly receives it on our behalf. And so we find ourselves in the place of those who condemn Jesus and set him off to his death. That we find good news. That we find that Jesus willingly takes on a death on our behalf. That we can be reconciled to God. That the judge, uh, that the judge becomes the judge and that he was judged on our behalf. And so good news for us who, who have put him in the kangaroo court. Now, as we get into the second half of the passage in verses 66 through 72, we come now to a parallel scene that was going on during Jesus's trial. And this is Peter's own denials of Jesus. Where Peter had given such bold acclamation that he would never forsake Jesus and that Jesus could count on him. He would be loyal to the end. And we find that uh, this is not exactly what happens. And what we're going to learn is that our following Jesus reveals our ultimate values and needs that our following Jesus reveals our ultimate values and needs. And first, we're going to deal with values under point A here, approval and Peter's demise. What we find in in verses 66 through 72 is this incremental story where Peter is confronted by a servant girl. Now, this was no one important in the first century. 
It's just a common household. You could say slave. Okay, and so a common slave approaches Peter and says, you're one of them. And did you notice where Peter was standing? It's back at the beginning of the passage. He was standing by the fire. Okay, so there was a lot of light. And she was more than likely recognizing him and listening to his accent. Galileans had a particularly strong accent. And so she thought maybe he was one of Jesus' disciples. And he says, basically, he dismisses her and says, I'm not. But it says that Jesus moves away. I mean, that Peter moves away. He moves further out uh, from the fire. And so he moves a little further into the darkness and goes to the entryway to the courtyard. And once again, the servant girl comes. And this time she approaches him and she does it in front of a group of people. And she says, he is one of them. And so Peter's denial broadens in scope. Okay? And so first he was just denying Jesus to the servant girl. Then he was denying Jesus to the servant girl and the broader audience. Uh, And then the broader audience accuses him, certainly you are one of them. Certainly you have to be. And you can almost feel Peter retreating further back from the light of the fire, which was a metaphor for what was going on spiritually. He was turning further away from God, further away from Jesus. He was uh, he was just shrinking back. And Peter swears a curse against himself. (laughs) And he he swears by saying this. Look, look at his. Look at the language here. They say, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them. I don't know this man you're talking about. And then immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now, there was a scholar, and I don't know what possessed him to do this, but he studied rooster crows in Jerusalem for 12 years. (laughs) I hope no one here funded that study. Um, But what they discovered is rooster crows over 12 years um, that the roosters tended to crow from 1230 to 3:30, and they did it on the hour approximately. And so there would be three rooster crows, roughly. Um, and uh, and the, so this this was in the middle of the night. And uh, it says that Peter's denials took place between two rooster crows. Okay, so in the space of approximately an hour, Peter denies Jesus three times. Now sometimes we go rather hard on Peter because we're like, well, why would he deny Jesus? You know, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't deny Jesus, my Lord. But you notice that the other 11 disciples, one of them had betrayed him and the other 10 had already fled. And uh, you saw that funny story in, uh, in chapter 14 about the one who took off naked. <laughs> humorous sometimes what the Bible includes. You know, one of them just, just took off from the bolted from the garden. And Jesus, uh, well, Peter here, he's the only one left. And it says he followed him at a distance. So Peter was holding true to that statement he had made that he was going to be loyal to Jesus to the end. And he said, I would even die for you. And so Peter's holding fast to identifying with Jesus. But in point one, despite his bold affirmation, and you find that in chapter 14, verses 29 through 31, despite his bold affirmation and loyalty, Peter put himself before his Lord. Under pressure, he denied his Lord rather than himself. Peter had made all the necessary confessions. He'd walked through the door. But then when he gets under pressure, he put himself before his Lord because all of a sudden he was forced to count the cost. And he was confronted by a servant girl. And this servant girl brings out his true heart in a moment that was had to be excruciatingly painful because we know that Peter was a married man. The New Testament makes that clear. Perhaps Peter had children. And you can imagine the thoughts going through his mind. If they identify with me with Jesus, then I'm going to die here as well. And so Peter thought for his own interests. And he ends up doing the unthinkable. And so point A, even the boldest and bravest among us are susceptible to seeking the approval of others over being faithful to Christ. Even the boldest and bravest among us are susceptible to seeking the approval of others over being faithful to Christ. 
And once again, just like we have to identify with those who put Jesus on trial, because we would try him by our cultural values, we also have to identify with Peter. And we have to identify with the other ten disciples who denied him, who ran away, who fled, who wouldn't even be identified with him in in this most crucial hour. Because, friends, even the best among us who make the best confession that we're all susceptible to this, this is how frail we truly are. This is how tentative our discipleship and following of Jesus is. And we find many occasions in our lives where we're given opportunity to deny Jesus. You find it with your colleagues, those who would mock and sneer at Christianity in very subtle ways typically, and it normally comes up surrounding another issue, you find it sometimes in the privacy of dealing with your checkbook when you think about your finances. You find it sometimes just in the privacy of your own minds when you contemplate things that you want to do, decisions you know that you shouldn't make. But we're confronted uh, constantly with this desire to deny Jesus, to turn away from him. And friends, what this story reminds me of is just the utter need for grace and the utter need for, for Jesus to uphold each one of us, that we might be faithful to him. Because one of the things that we find here is that the bolder our affirmations, the harder the fall. <laughs> That's difficult. Because Peter is singled out in all the gospel narratives as the failure. But he's also singled out as the only one who is really being loyal to Jesus in his utmost need. But the greater our affirmations and the stronger we make our confessions of faith, also the greater potential for the fall and so the greater need for grace that we need, that we have. And so we have to hold very tight to Jesus, but know that our ultimate value sometimes is approval. And we desire the approval of people more than we desire the approval of God. And so we have to reorient that and try to rework it. Now, our following Jesus not only reveals our values, but also our need. And this is point B, where we talk about forgiveness and Peter's restoration. It is a remarkable story that Peter was restored. Here he was, denying Jesus in the courtyard at the very moment where Jesus was being faithful to his own confession. The two stories just juxtapose one another, and there's a deep irony in them. But though a failure, Jesus does not discard Peter. Rather, he restores him and launches his mission from Galilee with his leadership. Look at the end of the book in verse 7. This is where Jesus has appeared resurrected after his death to the women who come to the tomb. And look at the message he gives to them. He says, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just As he told you. Now, isn't it remarkable that Jesus in that in those final words that he says, go tell the disciples. And then who is the disciple that he singles out? This was an extraordinary act of love and mercy. He singled out Peter because he knew the guilt and condemnation that Peter experienced. And he understood the pressures that Peter was under. And Jesus was willing to receive him back into his fold. And not only to receive him back on some rudimentary status where he would be some type of remedial disciple. He wasn't wasn't received back on conditions, was he? But Peter was retained in leadership. He was going to be one of the leaders of this mission to the Jews. And this mission to the Gentiles, this worldwide endeavor that Jesus was now going on through his people. And we learned some very important things about spiritual leadership here. And um, for those of you in the room, you've had many more lessons at this than me. And just in my own uh, few years of ministering in the church, it's, um, it's quite painful, the things that we learn about ourselves. I remember the year that uh, I had decided to go to seminary. And I was uh, going to attend the next year. And uh, I, my wife and I had just gotten married. And uh, I was quite confident of several things. I was quite confident of my call to ministry. Uh, I was quite confident of myself. And I was quite confident that I would come and fix people like you. Um, (laughs) And um, 
so there was a little work that needed to be done, and God was rather ruthless and non-sparing in that year. Um, but I remember during the time, uh, there was particular just exposure of sin in my life. And I was studying um, the Beatitudes. And I thought that that would be a nice section of Scripture that I can memorize and kind of get along with. And, uh, and I remember the first Beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That was nice. I knew my theology, and that was about total depravity and humanity's inability to reach out to God because we are so depraved and we're so sick in our sin. And so I loved that one. That was nice. And I had several pages in my journal about, um, you know, uh, just kind of theological pontification about the depravity of human people, (laughs) by human beings. And then I got to the second one. Blessed are those who mourn, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I was wondering about that. Well, what exactly does that mean? I hadn't had terrible tragedy at that point in my life. Um, Do I really know what it is to mourn? And so I began to read some commentaries. I was reading one by Don Carson. And he made this one statement that was a little bit incidental to the passage. But he says, we have to remember that the Beatitudes are not spoken in a vacuum, that they hang together. And all of a sudden it dawned on me. Oops. (laughs) Blessed are... The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And that that mourning was particularly tied to that knowledge of being poor in spirit. And that I couldn't divorce those two beatitudes. And I began to do a self-assessment where I understood very clearly that I was theologically depraved. But when I really looked at myself, I didn't really believe that. Because there was very little mourning over my sin. In fact, I was very self-confident. I found a a need for Jesus in my failures. But I didn't find much need for him in my righteousness. I just I I thought I was a, a pretty good guy. And Jesus covered up some of the bad blemishes on my side. And it was absolutely ruthless what God did to me that year. Because there was that moment, kind of that understanding. And then there had to come the experience to drive that home. And my wife, I, I like to refer to marriage as the sanctification vice grips, um, <laughs> just squeezed me that year. You know, it was unbelievable the, the pressure I felt. Uh, but it was very good, even though it was painful. And there were times during the year where I felt absolutely disqualified for ministry. Can, can somebody like me go to seminary? Surely not, because I'm atrocious. And I saw things about my heart and about my temper, uh, about my opinions. It were just awful. And could somebody like me really be used by God? That question was constantly on my mind. Several weeks ago, I was interacting with a friend, a seminary student, who, um, very competent young man. He, he's just a good guy. You would all like him. And he was just retelling, recounting for me just some of the struggles that he's had since he's been in school. And it's just absolutely crushed him. And he almost said the same words that I thought to myself several years ago. He said, I don't think I'm really worthy of being a servant of God. I'm really not sure that I could serve him. And how am I supposed to? How am I supposed to give myself to the task of ministry when I can't even handle these issues in my personal life? What am I supposed to do? And uh, it was one of those moments where you're able to relate and really understand someone else's pain. You know, because I remember asking myself that same question. And all of us who here have really struggled with the depth of our own fallenness, we know the same question. We know the pain. It resonates. And the thing is, is that from Peter's story, what we learn, that it's only from that depth of pain, from that place of absolute brokenness and fallenness, that we find competent ministers of the gospel. And my friend was so bent on saying that he was unworthy of the gospel, I finally asked him, you know, whatever made you think that you were competent to minister the gospel? Was it because you were righteous? (laughs) By yourself? Did you think you were qualified because of who you were? And that's never the case. And that our failures have to be turned into a source of God's grace. They have to be turned into a source of power. And so, A here, the foundations of spiritual leadership involve an emptying prior to a filling, a breaking prior to a healing, and weeping prior to forgiveness. 
The foundations of spiritual leadership involve an emptying prior to a filling, a breaking prior to a healing, and weeping prior to forgiveness. And guys, it's when we enter into that place of brokenness, when we can acknowledge the depth of our sin, when we understand our denials of Jesus and how we identify with Peter, when we're not sitting in judgment upon Peter for his misdeeds, when we recognize that all of us disciples are rather weak and frail, that it's from that place that we become competent ministers of grace because we know what it is to be graced ourselves. And we know what it is uh, to come along a sinner and come alongside of a sinner and to say, you know what? I know that God can forgive this because He's forgiven all of my sins. And He's cleansed me. And I know that He can restore you from this. Henry Nowen, 1970, he wrote a very prophetic book. It's called The Wounded Healer. And uh, at that time in the, in the Christian counseling world, there was a lot of literature about ministering from a position of strength. And Nowen wrote a book that was very countercultural at the time. He says this. He says, Making one's own wounds a source of healing... Therefore, does not call for a sharing of superficial personal pains, but for a constant willingness to see one's own pain and suffering as rising from the depth of human conditions, which we all share. And what Nowen is writing about is that the only way to be a competent minister is to understand that we are all wounded healers, that we are all like Peter, and that it's only from the depth of our own understanding of our fallenness from the depth of our own betrayals, that God truly rise, raises us up to be ministers of grace. And I think that Peter's story is a really remarkable one for us. Because Peter recovers. The Gospel of Mark does not tell us about that recovering, even though it's insinuated. And it's a, a, the Gospel of Mark is an incredible um, story of humility. Because as Sandy has discussed, this Gospel was... Um, According to church tradition, it was written under Peter's authorization. Isn't it remarkable that Peter, a very powerful apostle when this was penned, still had the grace to recognize his failures? That is a great argument for inspiration of the Bible and its inherency. You know, that the writers of the Bible were extremely self-effacing. They were not out to support their own position. And... You know, but Peter could put his own failures there upon the page and recognize them because he knew what it meant to be restored. And then once he was restored, according to church tradition, it was that same Peter. When he had tasted the grace and the mercy of God, who when he was in Rome and under the neuronic persecutions, it was Peter who gave himself on a cross. And according to the traditions, Peter said, I'm not worthy to die like my Lord. So you've got to crucify me upside down. But Peter, that one who had been so faithless, and you and I, those ones who are so faithless, when we experience that brokenness and when we come to the end of ourselves and then we've been restored by Jesus, that this creates a greater faithfulness within us. And that is the marvel of the grace of God. And that's how He fits us for spiritual leadership. And we drive further into being faithful to Jesus only because we've experienced His grace not because we're strong in ourselves. And so when we look at this trial of Jesus, where he's condemned by the judges, by the Sanhedrin, the most powerful men of his world, we know that we have condemned him too because his kingdom is something foreign to us. But then we know that Jesus has been judged on our behalf, that he willingly went under that judgment, that he might receive all who would believe in him. And then we know that even when we deny him and we're faithless, that Jesus restores us and creates a greater faithfulness in us still. And this is our qualification to speak to those around us. It's only out of our failures, out of our knowledge of those, that we become ministers of grace. So let me pray for us. Father, we do thank You for Your grace and mercy. And that in these strange and odd events that lead to Jesus' death, that He willingly went under human judgment in order that He might come under Your judgment on our behalf. And that He was crushed, and then that You raised Him up, You exalted Him, that all who belong to Him by faith would be vindicated as well. And so, Lord, we trust Him. Jesus is our Lord, and He is our God. 
And we ask for Your grace that we might be faithful disciples. And even in our failures, God, would You restore us? And would we know that You are the One who now commissions us into this great mission into the world and that it's You who use failures, You who use those who are forgiven in order to create a greater faithfulness within them. And so, Lord, might we rise from this place and would we follow Jesus into all the world to be His servants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.